it's this ethereal magical place where you're having a shower in an outdoor solar shower and these monkeys come and hoot at you out of the mist and, and there's puma tracks when you go walking on the trails and and so then when you hear that there's potentially going to be an open pit copper mine <laughs> right where you're standing I mean there's no way you'd then be able to go oh yeah but it's necessary I think it's about bringing the the heart into like I think it's this deepest one of the most deepest biological urges we have is to protect to, to, to defend life isn't it and and may and when we live in cities I think and when we get really busy with it's the same for me it's it's easy to sort of lose sight of that and to start thinking more in terms of technical solutions or large-scale top-down solutions that aren't really grounded in this intrinsic ancient desire to have a whole place a world that 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 is intact and thriving and you know That's Liz Downs, an activist, writer, and the director of the Rainforest Information Centre in Australia. We recorded this conversation on December 7, 2021, shortly after a huge victory for rainforest protection in a major court case in Ecuador that protects the Los Cedros Reserve. It looks like the Rainforest Information Centre may be supporting another class action case by a group of farmers that's getting started. So there's a lot of opportunity to support them through fundraising and sharing information about those campaigns. I'll be sharing links in the show notes for that. We're at turningseason.com slash episode eight for this conversation. I loved talking with Liz. I was fascinated to learn more about this complication in our effort to transition to electric vehicles which is the need for copper, a lot of copper, and a lot of which is underneath the world's most biodiverse ecosystems. I also really enjoyed hearing about Liz's experience being an activist in these David and Goliath type situations, you know, local communities versus mining corporations, and how she is fueled to some degree by anger and even more deeply, by love. And I was so glad that Liz highlights this reality that the idea that people, humans, are bad for the earth seems to completely overlook all the human beings who are not only living in a less consumptive, less destructive way, but all the human cultures that have solutions and ways of thinking that can lead us to the type of change we need. I want to mention before you listen that Liz refers to the truth mandala, which is a group practice from the work that reconnects, uh, also known as experiential deep ecology in Australia. And this truth mandala practice is the enlivening act of telling the truth in community, where each person can speak their sorrow which we also recognize as love. Each person can speak their anger, which we also see as passion for justice. Our fear, which also shows trust and courage in speaking it. And our emptiness, which is also space for the new to arise. And I'm sharing it with you the way that it's described in Coming Back to Life, Joanna Macy's guidebook for the work that reconnects. 
Liz shared with me after we stopped recording that she doesn't often get to talk like this about the bigger picture of what she's doing, as in the day-to-day, she's so involved in the tasks of the activism and the legal cases. And I was also excited to talk with someone about things I don't always talk about, someone who is so involved in the day-to-day work of what we call holding actions, preventing or slowing down damage to the earth and all of us beings living here. So much gratitude and respect for the work Liz and her team are doing. So here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy hearing from Liz Downs. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar, here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and change makers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, new innovations to bridging social divides, there are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. My guest today is Liz Downs. Liz is an activist and a writer. She's been facilitating workshops based on the work that reconnects and the deep ecology practices of Joanna Macy and John Seed for over 10 years. She's currently a director of the Rainforest Information Center started by John Seed, which has embodied grassroots forest activism and deep ecology all around the world for four decades. With the Rainforest Information Center and a small, passionate team of volunteers, she coordinates a campaign supporting local front lines to stop grand-scale mining projects in Ecuador, home of the world's most biodiverse rainforests and ecosystems and many indigenous nations. The spirit of Ecuador's forests and mountains inspires Liz's work. Thank you so much for joining me today, Liz. No worries. Thank you for having me. So I know you've been deeply involved in the work that reconnects and deep ecology for a long time now. And I want to open up with a couple of questions from the work and invite you to share how you would finish this open sentence. Some things I love about being alive on earth are. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I guess in a way, um, something about being alive on Earth is about being connected, and um, that is being connected to um, some parts of the world um, which are particularly special, and also and to um, nature, you know, to our incredible <laughs> web of life, um, feeling part of that, and also, and then in managing to be able to express that in um, in a kind of a, I don't know, it's it's like a. It, it, I mean, I, I use the word fight in a way that it's it's like um, maybe how John Seed uses it, which is my mentor. Um, 
you know, I am the rainforest defending itself and that's an act of love and that makes me feel very connected as well. Beautiful. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? What is What does that mean for you, being the rainforest defending itself? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, um, since I was a child, I've always been, I mean, my first thing that I became fascinated with about the time I could talk was living things, <laughs> things that move and crawl and, and fly and grow. And um, always wanted to be a biologist, um, <laughs> except that didn't really happen because I wasn't good enough at maths and, and that <laughs> kind of technical stuff. So, um, yeah, and so get and then coming to recognize really young that that life um is being threatened all over the world by basically human activities and and activities from the kind of culture that i grow up in which is a very you know a, a white privileged <laughs> um industrialized culture and you know the the grief about that sort of hit very young um, and so I did a need to kind of get involved with other groups that are sort of really that care about um, yeah, that care about our brothers and sisters. I mean, not not just non-human, but then also learning that you know there are humans that care a lot and and a lot and um, and getting into social justice through that as well. So anyway, I mean that's a long way of going. That's kind of what that looks like for me. It's this kind of entanglement, I guess, where I can't. I don't feel like I could ever. It's not like a job that you can just start and then leave and move on to something else. It's kind of a, an entanglement that's been there my entire life. Um, and being sitting there and that feeling of called up, which I guess I could talk about later as well in this interview. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's come back to that. I, I, I love your use of the word entanglement in this way, because it's, it's just in such a positive way. I mean, we're, we're, we're utterly in, interconnected and we are entangled. We don't move without everything else moving in some way too. So um, I will ask you though, the other, the other side of this question, which is the next open sentence. When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is. <sighs> um. What breaks my heart and makes me really frustrated? <laughs> um, I mean, I would say, if, I mean, every time I do a truth mandala, I have to say that I normally come in with anger. Um, it's just the way I respond to things. It's kind of a deep justice anger and it's it comes out of, um, it's you know, it's, it seems like no matter what we do um, as activists on the front line and supporting people on the front line as well, I mean, that's the, mo the most part of the campaigning work we do is supporting others who are, it's a, it's a David and Goliath situations um, being, you know, that, that, that there seems to be this in, intense assault on our planet's living systems right now and and also on you know it, it comes out of inequality as well and this intense social inequality of, of this extractive mindset which we you know it's it's it's, it's not just industrialized it's extractive and it, it's it's about plundering and it's about you know um, wanting to make profit for, for a few people at the expense of <laughs> um, millions and billions of other people and 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 our life force and it seems at times to be really unstoppable um and and it kind of just 
makes me feel at times that there is no, um, yeah, like no matter what we do, it's always going to be a very drop in the ocean. But you know, and that that's that at times just kind of goes, oh, you know, it's no matter. And and then of course, there's that whole thing about no matter what we do, it's like we tend to get the flack for it as well, and and that you know makes me feel sad that. You know, uh, I don't know. It's it sounds really negative, but <laughs> that's kind of what causes me sometimes to just go into those um, challenging emotions about this kind of work and the life that we're in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not negative in the sense of like a negative attitude. It's just a negative experience, right? To to see that. Um, we can, we can do these big things and have victories, which I'm excited for you to talk to us about here shortly. Um, but also it feels really small. It can feel like a drop in the ocean. It can feel, feel like there's a lot of power against us. So yeah, I mean, anger and sadness are pretty appropriate emotions in that case. And, um, do you feel like the anger is part of what, fuels you that that sense of justice and and wanting to fight back about what's unjust yeah I would say um, that's primarily probably what fuels me at the moment yeah 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 it just it just it seems to be I mean you know I get up in the morning and I start working and, <laughs> um, and I mean there, there was definitely love and there, and there's a whole other side to it as well actually which I mean it's probably deeper ultimately, mm-hmm. which is where I get on to Ecuador, I guess, but in a sense of maybe having had experiences where I've gone out into, into, you know, I guess, I mean, growing up in Australia, there's always a sense of, of um, the spirit of the land here because we have a very strong, you know, we, we have um, possibly 100,000 years of Indigenous culture here, Indigenous people having lived here and and who have very, very, um, you know, that who know that entanglement with with country, as we call it here, and, and even as a white person growing up here, I've had, you know, you know, you walk out in the land and you can feel that that history and, and that strength of, of the land. Um, so I've had a lot of experiences just walking out and just going, you know, being completely overcome by that. And, and um, you know, and, and generally only away from the sort of industrial sprawl <laughs> and the, the kind of white living that, that uh, you know, unfortunately I spend most of my time physically in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then having also been to other places of the world which are vast and entirely almost entirely other than human, just with, you know, but also being with Indigenous people who <laughs> um, have that interrelationship. So that drives me a lot as well. Yeah, beautiful. So why don't we go ahead and jump into talking about Ecuador? I, I feel like we can, we, we talked a little bit before this interview about how you're participating in the dimension of the great turning that we call holding actions, taking actions to slow down the damage, to stop the damage in places. And I would love if you could give us some background on what's been happening in Ecuador and the latest updates too. give us, give us kind of an overview. And then we can dive into different parts of what it's been like for you to be a part of this campaign. Cool. Um, so yeah, um, 
Ecuador is basically one of the most biodiverse countries in the world and um, it's, it's, it's got the Andes, which go up above, you know, um, over 4,000 metres above sea level. And um, so it's got all this altitude difference. It's got a huge amount of endemism of species. Um, it's got the Amazon rainforest stretching out into the Amazon basin on the, um, on the east. And then on the west, it's got um, these incredible cloud forests, which um, are forests that, are, that live 100% of their time in, in cloud, wow. <laughs> um, 100% humidity, and very, again, very, you know, hundreds and thousands of rare and, and endangered and, and endemic species living in those areas. Um, so I've, I've been working, as mentioned, John Seed in the Rainforest Information Centre. Um, so John, as many listeners might know, is a kind of legend. <laughs> he um, uh, conceptualised the whole idea of deep ecology as a kind of way of being and also as a workshop to kind of help people remember, and particularly activists. It's, uh, John's work has been a lot with activists um, over the decades um, in rainforest activism. So, you know, this, this idea of, of, you know, like we're, we're, when we're going out to, as I say, defend the forest, it's, it's like um, we're coming from a spot of we are the forest defending ourselves. We are, um, we're living, breathing, in, interchanging gases with, with the trees. We are interchanging, um, you know, water in a hydrological cycle. Um, and you know it's so, so coming from that place and coming into into anyway um rainforest information center started in 1979 and then went all over the world basically supporting rainforest front lines and um in 1989 um a decade later there was um turned out that there was some some volunteers in ecuador um and um there was a forest area in northwestern Ecuador called um, the Choco, um, Choco Andina Cloud Forest Belt, and there's only about 10% of it left in the world, so it's an incredibly endangered region. Um, and the so, so John and the Rainforest Information Centre got a grant from the Australian government to Establish a reserve there, which became Los Cedros Reserve. It's it's this uh, a forest segment that's attached to a national park. Um, got an amazing local management team there that have been there ever since, and hundreds and thousands of scientists have been there, and and you know visitors and and whatever. Um, anyway, um, to cut things short, <laughs> in twenty seventeen we found out that Los Cedros was under company who want to mine copper mainly and gold. Um, and um, so we thought, oh, shit, <laughs> we better go. Better find out a bit more about what's happening here. Um, so we then found out that these concessions had been awarded to what is now about 3 million hectares of Ecuador's protected areas, including indigenous lands, including forests that are, you know, formally protected under national parks and um, various, you know, conservation systems in Ecuador. Um, some are, you know, um, nominated for world heritage. And they're basically wanting to have a mining bonanza over these, these, these areas. Um, 
And part of that is because the copper prices are going up massively because everyone in in the rich countries of the world want electric cars and wind farms. So Mm -hmm. a lot of this copper is going to go to the climate um, (laughs) techno solutions, actually, which is incredibly complex. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and so the climate movement is not talking about this because I mean it's kind of a, a taboo. It's like, well, we need to bring down global warming, but then the other side of the coin is that if we're going to be destroying potentially these, in, you know, the world's most biodiverse regions, we're we going to be moving into indigenous lands, taking lands off people, literally selling land from under people's feet. Um, farming communities are affected. So anyway, Ecuador is is in this situation. Um, and being kind of overly enthusiastic and ambitious, you know, little old us at the Rainforest Information Centre thought, okay, well, we can set up a campaign to stop this. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, not quite realising how big it was, the problem was at the time, but we're sort of realising now and we, so anyway, we decided, okay, we better focus on, Los Cedros is really important. So um, yeah, last year, this is kind of relevant to our um discussion also i want to say that um, ecuador is the first country in the world to um enshrine the rights of nature in its constitution uh-huh which is quite important because it's kind of like this this legal manifestation of a very deep ecology idea <laughs> which yeah. comes out of the indigenous um ontologies and cosmovisions of the Andean regions of South America this and it's a very very strong it's like it's basically enshrining the idea that that that, you know nature our environment is part of us and it's an organic part of us it's living it's growing you know it's it's an organism in itself in a legal system in a country's constitution. How long has that been in Ecuador's constitution? It's been, um, so the the constitution was redrafted in 2008. Okay. And, yeah, and included the rights of nature in that new version. So it's very current. There's been a lot of cases defending nature using these laws. Um, And Los Cedros is the most recent one and it's the most exciting one. Um, So so anyway, last week we had a win. A year ago we had the hearing at the constitutional court um, where um you know some amazing lawyers drew up a case uh saying that mining companies cannot mine in this protected area because um the forest and all its endangered species or all its species but particularly five emblematic endangered species including um a spider a, a spider monkey and a, a, a subspecies of jaguar and an eagle so there's some different species that are emblematic that are critically endangered, they will go extinct if there's mining. So this case was brought to the Constitutional Court um, on the basis of the rights of nature. And last week, seven out of the nine constitutional judges said, okay, we we actually um, uh, have ruled that the um, mining companies have violated the rights of nature. And they've also violated some, some other um, human rights, which are very related. One is to the, the rights of nearby communities to clean drinking water and um, to a, a, a safe and clean environment. And the other one is a kind of um, environmental consultation process that needs to take into account the, um, 
you know, the fact that this is an extraordinarily vulnerable area that has its own rights to exist, persist and thrive, regardless of whether it can provide resources for humans. Yeah. So it's a very ecocentric idea and we've got now got this case with it that kind of embodies that. Well, hooray. First of all, let's just celebrate that for a minute. That's just um, fantastic. And from what I'm gathering, it's it's uh, like a landmark history-making moment where there's actually this place being protected on the grounds of rights of nature. Yeah, Um yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, there, there have been other rights of nature wins and cases around the world, not just Ecuador, but the, the thing about this one is that it's um, got implications for the mining industry, uh-huh. which so far has been, and this is where we get onto this idea of extractivism being this Goliath that thinks it can just operate with total impunity. Um, you know, it can go in anywhere and, you know, as long as it's got minerals, you know, we can mine. And this is, this is the attitude that we're dealing with at the moment particularly with these, you know, um, you know, the climate movement now pushing these transition minerals, which is a huge problem because unless you come, you know, so, yeah, unless you're coming from a, a perspective of, you know, well, what about these what we call sacrifice zones where, you know, people and nature who are, you know, perfectly happy without, <laughs> you know, giant copper mines being dumped on them are saying, hey, but what about us? Don't we have a voice, you know? How, do, how does this, um, so yeah, this case has, has implications for a lot of other protected forests in Ecuador. Um, you know, the mining industry is sort of a bit, mm, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> um, yeah, and we're still working through those implications basically, but yeah, it is potentially quite exciting. That is really exciting. And what's the, I'd love to understand more how you're working with local grassroots and indigenous people who also are fighting to protect this area what's what's that relationship been like and is there anything um how did it begin I guess did you step into a movement that was already happening or what's that collaboration been like yeah it's been a a big collaboration really um we we just stepped in I mean obviously Bain First Information Centre and and our we've got a a, also a group of um incredible group of volunteers which call ourselves the Bain First Action Group um so we're, we're quite we're very we're not an NGO really I mean well we kind of are but we're not we're we're quite anarchistic um in our approach um the Rainforest Action Group is basically we just say oh we're anarchists you know we, we're not we're not um <laughs> there's a lot of problems with NGOs in this space because NGOs do tend to sometimes have their own agendas um uh-huh. particularly the bigger ones and they've been working with mining companies um, to, you know, try and portray the mining activities as being clean and green and, and all the rest of it. And we often have issues and local people have issues with that as well. So they're like, well, you know, so we all, we, all we've been doing is supporting um, efforts on the front line. I mean, we've we raised a lot of money to pay for the legal fees, which is no way that local groups would be able to afford <laughs> the legal fees to, to get a case like this off the ground. Um, we're also supporting a couple of other legal cases in the same region, also against mining. Um, and we're just like basically, we're trying to get the word out there to the, to the you know, to, to in people in Australia, we're, we're such a, a rich, privileged nation as a rule who are dependent upon mining. There's this incredible, like, there's this right-wing media that sort of, you know, <laughs> portrays, you know, this, this, 
mining exploration as being the hope of the future for you know it, it's it's crazy so we're just trying in, in our own little way to kind of beat back that story a bit and put out a different story which is you know like just supportive of of those those who are are literally on the front lines and who are literally putting their lives on the line for you know defending their their water and and these these forests and also defending the, the little you know the um the frogs and the, and the birds and the, and 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 these species that have no other home to go to yeah if, yeah yeah wow so there's really there's so many interconnected things here that i'm hearing i mean there's there's all the other than human species that would many would be harmed and some would go extinct and then there's the people who rely on the clean water and the whatever economic forces in Australia um, are behind the mining companies and I also saw a reference to some of the local communities that have been dependent on the mining is that employment or what what's been going on with um kind of locals who are working for mining companies or things like that have you been involved in that part of it yeah so this this is very tricky um what, what happens is the mining companies go into communities and they have a very clever strategy to try and socialize those communities um it literally the literally the word is socialization Wow. So, and that's about, um, and, you know, there's various strategies that they use to do that. Um, some of it can get quite in, you know, into the level of a divide and conquer kind of strategies, which is the way colonial people have always worked in terms of going into other people's lands and taking what they want. They, you know, yeah, pick out the leaders that they think might be susceptible to bribes or whatever. And, and then they offer jobs that may or may not actually exist in the end and, so that's happening all over Ecuador, and it's also happening in this particular region we've been working with. Um, the region itself is actually very strongly anti-mining. Mm. Um, there's a long history. There's some very brave people who have been um, fighting for decades uh, uh, to um, keep that area mining out. It's, it's not a new problem. It's been around since the, you know, the 80s. Um, and, yeah, so... You know, there's, there's there's all these kind of games that, that that get played, and I think one is when we're going back to you know when you're saying about holding actions. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I had a bit when I was pre preparing for this interview, I was having this thought, and I thought, well, it's not just holding actions; it's like a meld of holding actions with a view to system change, because mm -hmm. at the moment the system is totally like global neoliberal economic system is totally perpetuating this continuation of this you know these these procedures and and mining you know like young people go to school to 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 learn about geology and with a view to going into mining companies and they get taught how to socialize communities and they get taught how to go into lands and you know you use their anthropology degrees to convince people you know it's a oh, wow. real industry and it's yeah. huge and we you know to tackle one front line is really to be working in a framework well as it's every front line as yeah. well. And it's, it's, you know, what needs to change in order to, um, to protect what's, you know, what's left of, of, of our, um, 
yeah, living our, our <laughs> systems that give us life. Yeah, our, our living systems that sustain all of us. So this is good. I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask you about that exactly, which is for listeners, um, you've probably heard in previous episodes that we're talking about the the story of the great turning. So Joanna Macy and maybe John Seed, I don't understand the history of it well enough. I'd love to learn more about their relationship and how it all began. But as I've learned it, Joanna Macy has described these three stories of our time, business as usual, which is a lot of what you're talking about, Liz, where it, we just carry on how we have been. You go and extract where you want to extract and you make more and build more and extract indefinitely, really. Um, business as usual has a lot of facets to it, of course, but it's the dominant culture, dominant economic system. And then there's a, another story that we can live in that we can see ourselves as a part of, which is the great unraveling where everything is falling apart, ecological and social crises everywhere you look. And then the third story that some of us see as the story that's happening, the main story, but many of us are moving between all these views of what's going on. That third story is called the great turning where humanity is in a process of turning toward a life-sustaining society, a life-sustaining way of being human on earth, of being this many humans on earth. And then to take it another step deeper, we talk about the three dimensions of the great turning. And so people are acting in service of the great turning in all these different ways. And one way is holding actions. So all this work by the Rainforest Information Center and the local activists to prevent extinction and destruction is a holding action, stopping damage from happening. But then there's the systemic change piece. How do we redesign systems that let us sustain life? And then the third dimension is about shifts in consciousness, shifts in state of mind, which is what I talked about a lot with Sky and Miraz on episode six. And Sky is the reason that Liz and I are connected now to have this conversation. So just wanted to give that kind of context for listeners and, and then get into this with you, Liz, how what you're doing is, is that meld because it's urgent. This is where we get that feeling of urgency. Like if we don't stop this now, this forest will be destroyed and it's not coming back. But also seeing you've mentioned so many things and, and I don't want to overlook the piece about the copper being in demand because we're trying to transition away from fossil fuels. So how do you, let's just, if we can focus on you and what moves you, how do you see what you're doing as a part of, of both of those, the holding action along with kind of looking at how the system could change? How do you get to interact with that? Yeah, um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, so yeah, I mean, physically, I guess most of the time, I mean, I'm, I, th I just think about how I spend most of my day at the moment is like with, with our you know, beautiful team of people. Um, you know, a lot of it's just putting out media releases and, you know, <laughs> fundraising and doing sort of very yeah. kind of nuts yeah. and bolts stuff. And, mm -hmm. and, and then and then there's this other aspect. Um, so I've got a friend and I um, doing a particular project, which is actually a research-based project. It's funded by a small kind of very grassroots NGO here in Australia called Aid Watch. Um, and it's um, 
it's a project looking at and it's kind of it came as an offshoot of, of all the stuff we're doing with Ecuador. But when, you know, when we started going, oh, you know, like 30% of the companies that are wanting to mine across Ecuador are Australian. And then looking at how, you know, the, the, the copper demand, you know, is being driven by this incredible, you know, like it, it's, it has just, you know, the copper prices have absolutely spiked since Joe Biden rejoined the Paris Agreement. They spiked again towards the COP26, even though COP26 was a bit of a failure in so many ways. But still, I mean, the, the, the amount of and the EU wanting to um, electrify. So and then um, the thing with copper being that uh, most of us, most big Australian mining companies like BHP, the world's biggest, and Rio Tinto and that are all mining in Chile at the moment. Most of our copper is coming out of the Atacama Desert. Um, but then those mines are starting to get to the end of their, you know, their natural mining life, um, <laughs> kind of running out of copper. So then they're moving into places like Ecuador, they're moving into the Congo, Papua New Guinea, Mongolia, all these countries that are really quite vulnerable in their mm -hmm. own way. Um, mm -hmm. And, and to mine, like because they're needing that copper now, and there's this urgency. So I guess the thing that draws the two things together for me is is urgency. Um, and so anyway, um, I've started with a, my friend Claire Burgess, who's a PhD student at the University of Tasmania down here at the bottom of the world, <laughs> um, doing this mapping of um, Australian mining companies that are going all over the world, and the fact that there's no watchdog, there's no. Um, I mean, the government's just all let's just go out there and mine, you know, make as much money as you can. Uh -huh. um, greenwash as much as you want, because it's all for the climate anyway, you know, and all that stuff. Mm. Um, you know, and we're like, well, actually, there needs to be a watchdog because there's all of these sacrifice zones that are opening up. And, that, you know, the holding actions, there's all these front lines that where people are waking up one morning and helicopters are flying overhead um, doing geomagnetic surveying, and they have not been consulted. And then the mining companies say they consult in the communities, but actually it's a very weak kind of consultation, which is more, you know, manipulation than consultation because they really, yeah. you know, they've invested millions of dollars potentially in these projects and they don't want to lose that. So they're wanting to get communities to agree as fast as possible. Um, so there's all this stuff. And, and I guess, yeah, like the different aspects of the campaign, it's a bit like dog paddling. <laughs> it does feel like uh -huh. dog paddling. Uh, you feel so tiny yeah um, but it's still I think like the fact that the work needs to be done is it needs to be done yeah and hopefully if we do it then other people will come on board and start doing it too and it'll start growing and you know we'll start seeing changes in the narratives and in the dialogues around extractivism or we'll start seeing you know people who are going hey you know that's actually not very just <laughs> right um, you can't have this happen and and you know it is starting to 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 happen now particularly since the cop 26 so yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah what's coming to mind for me is is that really the mindset shift is the shift in consciousness you know is is at play here too because this big push for copper is really so that the the richest lifestyles can be maintained and that we can, you know, uh, cut down on fossil fuels without sacrificing how much and how fast we move around and how much we have and make and produce and buy. And so there's really no easy out. It's almost like a business as usual attempt to solve the climate crisis. Like, oh, well, we'll, we'll still do business as usual. We'll just do it with copper. 
um, in or whatever other minerals or technologies are needed to do it in an electric way, as opposed to the fossil fuel um, technologies. So it's it's really all there in this situation. You know, the the change in how we even look at what we're trying to do, what we're trying to make, what we're trying to have, and what kinds of costs are acceptable. I mean, I could imagine a world in which it's completely absurd, where if someone proposed to the culture at large, we'll go take this land from these people, destroy trees, when we know that protecting existing forests is, is way more important than planting trees on the whole for for the climate, um, we'll destroy these trees. We'll, we'll like these animals will go extinct. People will lose their homeland. People will lose access to clean water, and then we'll have copper, so you can drive an electric car. Like that could sound completely absurd <laughs> um, if if our paradigm were were a bit different. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as it is, it doesn't sound absurd, does it? I mean, the climate no, movement. I mean, uh, it sounds like what we do. Yeah, it's and I talk to friends down here. I mean, beautiful friends that I work with in Extinction Rebellion and that down here. And I've got nothing against Extinction Rebellion, but everybody's most people's mindsets are in. Yeah, but we've got to we've got to stop global warming, and it's it's a, it's the same sense of urgency. Really interesting that the, I mean, no, it's the same sense of urgency that I feel. It's exactly the same amount of emotion. Um, you know, it's the the kind of existential crisis that we're all feeling in terms of the world right now. You know, if we, you know, and yet it's, you know, it, it's kind of like still not seeing a really big the bigger picture. And I think, I mean, go using, you know, with Joanna Macy, I think it's really clear why too. Um, people are overwhelmed; they're overwhelmed enough with the climate crisis as it is. And then we come along with it. Oh, well, all we need to do is is fix up our, you know, transport systems <laughs> and and stop producing, you know, like reduce our carbon emissions, and it'll all go away. Um, but yeah, it's very the appealing. next step to think <laughs> of the impact of that just kind of fries people's brains, and and it fries mine as well. It's I mean, <laughs> it's 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 huge. And and how do you deal with all of that at once? I think is a really big. Um, probably almost the need for this this work as well the um yeah so I want to circle back to what you said about the deep ecology and the work that reconnects feeding into this and that perception among the activists that we are the forest defending itself we are so interconnected that any move by any one of us right is is it's a part of one whole moving in, in some way or other. And in a way we're also destroying ourselves and mining ourselves, right? So yeah, just thinking about you having conversations with other passionate activists who have so much common ground, but are looking at it from slightly different angles and then coming to really different conclusions about what, you know, how to handle something. Um, what can you share about kind of going through those types of workshops with other activists? How does this help you connect with people, um, connect with yourself and find what's, what is going to keep you going? 
Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, one thing I, <laughs> that's occurring to me is that the last workshop I was personally co-facilitating was in February. <laughs> um, I've had no time to do workshops um, mm -hmm. since February, and we, we're hopefully we're going to be running another one. We, we run a, an annual workshop down here in in beautiful west coast of Tasmania, where we've got a there again a, a protected and threatened well no a a forest that should be protected but it isn't <laughs> it's threatened um, by mining interestingly um, mm. but it's it's an old growth incredibly you know Gondwana land primeval sort of forest called called the Tarkine um, or Takanya in the in, indigenous word for the for the area and and so we go out there every year. Um, and, and do a deep ecology um, immersion. And I'm really looking forward to the next one because I think that's going to be an opportunity to, to really get into this stuff. Like, because I think, you know, we, we don't have time as activists. We feel, you know, we feel so rushed. There's so much going on. There's so much emotion anyway. Um, but, yeah, I, I really feel that part of the key is to bring people back into connection with like you know get out of our busy brains and into connection with with what it is that like you know i mean there's i don't think any 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 of us if we went to a place and you know experienced its beauty and you know went to sleep under the trees and 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 you know you know like like I, how i feel about los cedros i mean i've been there about four times and the place is just magical it's absolutely you know, it's it's this ethereal, magical place where you're having a shower in an outdoor solar shower, and these monkeys come and hoot at you. <laughs> you know, ten meters away, out of the mist, and and there's puma tracks when you go walking on the trails, and it's it's incredible. Um, and so then when you hear that there's potentially going to be an open pit copper mine. <laughs> right where you're standing i mean there's no way you'd then be able to go oh yeah but it's necessary you know we we need uh -huh. to <laughs> you know that i think it's about bringing the the heart into like like you know that, that that i think it's this deepest one of the most deepest biological urges we have is to protect to, to, to defend life isn't it yes and and may and when we live in cities, I think, and when we get really busy, it's really and I, it's the same for me. It's it's easy to sort of lose sight of that and to start thinking more in terms of technical solutions or large scale, top down solutions um, that aren't really grounded in this, you know, that aren't so grounded in this um, innate, like intrinsic ancient desire to yeah to have a whole place a world that 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 is intact and 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 thriving and you know yeah i think that's really a really important focus i want to be getting into with facilitation yeah that seems like that that just seems so vitally important because i think there is we this this system does rely on us not really feeling connected and things being far away, you know, there's that phrase, not in my backyard, like as soon as it's your own backyard, you know, that, that, that phrase is sometimes used in a really negative way that, that it's just about, oh, well, not where I can see it, do it to someone else. But everybody has that feeling, not the land that I love, not the land that I'm connected to. 
And so to find that sense of connection, you know, just when I listen to you describe the mist and the monkeys and the people who've lived there and suddenly see the helicopters, you know, I feel like you're helping me cultivate this sense of connection with a place I've never seen. And without that, I don't know how we're, I don't know how we're going to change, you know, without really relating to it all. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually I just ask for a photo of the person I'm talking to, but now I want a photo of Los Segros to show to all the listeners so we can have that, that visual connection. It sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Sure. I can definitely provide some, yeah, provide that. Okay. Wonderful. Um, well, before we come towards the end of the hour, I want to ask if there's, if there's anything else on your mind that you want to bring into the conversation. Anything else you want to share? Um, not sure. <laughs> yeah, wherever yeah. you want to go. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of things I could share. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, there's only a few minutes left. I mean, I, I would I would urge people to, I think, you know, just having said that, it's been really good because I feel like that's been heavily on my heart is this almost, you know, like I feel like I want, you know, I want people to go, you know, to care as much as I do about these places. And I think, you know, or to care, you know, to care so much about wherever you are that you know that it's kind of a bit like, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's a bit analogous to people who go, oh, well, you know, there's just too many humans on the planet and, we you know, the planet will be better without us. I mean, and unfortunately, that's a, an argument that is um, quite a lot of my deep ecology yeah. friends are probably, you know, and, you know, but then that, you know, that's so disrespectful to the majority of humans on the planet who really aren't I mean I think it was I can't remember the exact stats but something like 80 percent of the world's carbon emissions are produced by some one percent of the population yeah, it's something it's something vastly disproportionate like that yeah yeah, yeah. it's fast and, and so so you know like but if you actually go and you 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 know, I mean, I, I, I've been lucky enough to travel at least prior to the COVID pandemic shutdowns and stuff, um, and and you know, to to actually hang out with people that there's no way you could, you know, conceive of, like you know, your whole shifting of of the idea of privilege, I think, really needs to to shift with people, and the, the way to do that is to, you know, develop heart connections with other people and other places, and and. Um, you know that you know transcend any you know sort of big ideas about you know maintaining our own lifestyles like I'm trying I mean I don't know my lifestyle is still pretty um it's still I'm pretty privileged <laughs> mm -hmm. I try and reduce my consumption but it's still pretty high um mm -hmm. but at least I know and at least that's the idea you know that's where I'm working towards in my heart so yeah yeah, yeah. so am I am I hearing you right that you you're saying you've gotten to spend time with people who are not part of this whatever it is one or five percent and seeing how that idea of like oh we just need less people but you're you've been looking you've been seeing human lifestyles that aren't the problem right and that are that are less yeah. consumptive yeah and not only less consumptive but actually can provide solutions <laughs> we're yeah. working with some amazing amazing projects in ecuador and, I mean, and in australia too i mean in, in indigenous 
knowledge systems here here are so you know are so perfectly su suited to, to finding solutions we just need to give people a more political voice to be able to actually you know and and also i mean it's changing out changing the white western paradigm which thinks it's so superior to everybody else's but in fact um i mean some you know some people that i, I know in the Am ecuadorian amazon um uh, I mean, who are, were instrumental in getting the rights of nature into the Ecuadorian constitution, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. that is living proof that um, right. a non-exploitative knowledge system and a relational knowledge system of, of you know, can actually be enshrined in law. Um, and yeah. it's happened in also New Zealand. We've got movements in Australia about that as well with, with our Indigenous First Nations people. You know, it's possible. It just needs a will and it needs... And it's a hope, I think, that we can can actually, you know, make this part of the great turning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, how can we support you and this work and this campaign and the frontline activists in Ecuador? How can people, yeah, just any any way you want to direct listeners who are feeling inspired to help right now? Yeah, well, we've got a, um, we do all our fundraising to, well, we, obviously funds are really important because these front lines obviously have very little cash. Um, so we, we just, you know, we try and support with, you know, supporting legal cases. Um, there's there's two legal cases, as I said, happening at the moment, other than Los Cedros. Um, we're also wanting to look at the long-term future of, of, you know, other protected forests. And that means supporting, you know, pe um, people to, you know, local employment as, as park um, guides and, 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 and ranges and things and, and different, you know, stuff like that. So we're always in need of funds. We, um, and we've got a crowd fund. I can probably send you the link to that rather than try and speak it over there yes um, okay so yeah we'll be able to find that link in the show notes we can do that yeah, and just sure. getting the word out you know i mean just uh -huh. maybe checking out i can send you some websites and different social media stuff i mean we just it's just about getting the story out i think it's really important to counteract the you know the industrial <laughs> um greed story that's that's still predominant yeah well, good. Yeah. Thank you so much for telling this version of this story. And I will definitely share whatever you share with me will be in the show notes as far as things people can share themselves and how to make a donation and, and support you and stay up to date. I mean, I'm, I'm so curious to find out if this has some impact on other mining attempts in Ecuador and elsewhere. So it's very exciting. And I, I know, I, I mean, I heard your images of dog paddling and being just one drop in the ocean and, and how, how hard you're working, how hard you all are working and how um, massive the forces that you're standing against really are. But I, I want to celebrate what you're doing and, and this victory and the direction that you're moving and really more and more people are moving. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Liz, and sharing all of this. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Liz and I would love to hear from you. Leave a comment at turningseason.com slash episode eight. 
and you can find links there to learn more about the Rainforest Information Center's campaigns and how to spread the word and support them. I'll be back on the new moon with your next dose of active hope. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.